0: Well, blame shifting has become one of those pop psychology terms that you hear everyone seems like talking about. You see it on social media, hear news commentators and talking heads on TV talking about it. Simply put, blame shifting is when you attempt to place the responsibility of wrongdoing onto someone else. Blame shifting is when someone says, I'm going to point out all of your wrongs so I never have to look at my own wrongs. It's basically a means of escaping responsibility. And it's as old as sin itself. You go back to the garden and we read in Genesis 3 that when God confronted Adam about eating the forbidden fruit, Adam blamed both Eve and God. He said, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. (laughs) And then when God turned to Eve, she blamed Satan. Well, the serpent deceived me, she said. So it wasn't her fault. Uh, either. Uh, People simply don't like to take responsibility for their actions. We find it hard to own our mistakes. It's always someone else's fault. Well, when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ, there has been 2,000 years of blame shifting. Uh, Who killed Jesus? Well, that question has been debated since the early days of the church. No one denies what happened, except maybe the most ignorant of skeptics. Uh, His death is as widely attested a historical fact as there ever was, and so is his resurrection, by the way. But the finger-pointing regarding the culprits is never-ending. Who killed Jesus? It's a controversial question because no one wants to take the blame, and everyone wants to shift the blame. So this morning, for a few moments, I want us to set aside the theological implications of the death and resurrection of Christ. I'll certainly address that soon enough. But just for the next few moments, I want us to focus on the reality of that day. What actually happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And who did it? So as we try to put ourselves in the mindset of the first century world, I want to begin with the words of someone who was actually there, uh, the Apostle John. Sixty years later, roughly, he wrote his epistle, uh, which he began with these words. That which was from the beginning, notice, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He goes on to talk about how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and how our fellowship with God comes through Jesus Christ, His Son. But imagine as John was writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was you know, a good six decades or so into the church age. By now there were many believers uh, populating churches across the landscape that had not walked and talked with Jesus for whom Jesus was something they had heard about or perhaps read about in the epistles that had already begun circulating by this time. And so John begins his epistle by saying, by reminding his readers and by extension us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look, we walked with him, we talked with him, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. And then he reminds them about the blood that was shed by Christ. And that's what I want us to do morning as we think about who killed Jesus is just imagine what it must have been like that day that weekend that week in fact it was 33 AD and I think to put it in perspective let's go back and look at a chronology of Christ's final week on earth leading up to the cross of course he appeared for 40 days after the resurrection to thousands of people before he ascended Uh, to the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, But uh, it all began uh, the, the week leading up to the crucifixion with Jesus spending time with Mary and Martha in Bethany six days before the Passover. In fact, John tells us about this in John chapter 12. And I think I'll read just a few verses of that to kind of put us in the context of what was happening as we lead up to the cross. John writes in John chapter 12, the same John, by the way, who we just read from in 1 John. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus who had been, was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Remember that uh, account? and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil but one of his disciples judas iscariot simon's son who would betray him said why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor thus he said not this he said not that he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it judas was quite concerned about money and in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me uh, you do not have always. So that was in Bethany, and we know historically that occurred March, Saturday and Sunday, March 28th and 29th. Now, uh, you read different commentators and different Bible study notes. You're going to see different dates, but the best dating and the most accurate dating is by a guy by the name of Harold Honer, whose magnum opus was uh, redating the apostolic age. He wrote uh, the book Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and it's pretty much universally accepted now that Jesus died in 33 A.D. He was born the winter of 54 B.C. while Herod was still alive. Herod died in 4 B.C., April of 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born while Herod was still alive. So a lot of people think Jesus was 33 years old when he died because he died in 33, but that's not exactly accurate. There was no zero year. He wasn't born in the year zero. He was actually born 54 B.C. Could have even been earlier, but most people believe about 54 B.C., which would make him about 37 years old uh, when he died. And then when you piece together the internal and external evidence of Scripture and you put this final week together, this is how the timeline takes shape. The triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Sunday, just because it's a week before Resurrection Sunday, actually occurred on Monday, March uh, 30th. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, deliberately fulfilling the prophecy about this in the Old Testament, about the coming of the Messiah. He's mobbed by adoring uh, crowds. And then uh, on Tuesday, that's when he curses the fig tree. He cleanses the table, over, uh, the temple, overturns the table of the money changers and rebukes them because they were defiling the temple. Uh, the, the leaders at that time of the Jewish establishment realized that Jesus is threatening their power and so do the Romans who fear that Jesus has developed such a following that it might lead to an uprising. And so things are kind of really beginning to boil over. You read about this in Matthew 23 and you see Jesus' harsh words that he has to say for the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees in Jerusalem that day as he was coming in to celebrate a Passover. And then on Wednesday, he answers the disciples' question about his return and the establishment of the kingdom. The disciples were beginning to get a little antsy because Jesus had, had again, cursed the temple. He had said not one stone is going to be left upon another. And they're beginning to piece together what he's saying and realizing that that he's not going to throw off the shackles of Rome and establish the long-awaited earthly kingdom like the Old Testament prophets said right then. That as he told them the day before the triumphal entry, it's not on this list here, but it would have been on that that Friday. uh, He told them, look, the king's going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. And then after a long while, he'll come back and establish his kingdom. But until then, be busy doing what I've entrusted you uh, to do. But they hadn't quite uh, put it together. So they asked him, when's the kingdom going to come? And he gives uh, some of the greatest teaching about his return found anywhere in scripture in the Olivet uh, Discourse. And we've been studying that on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. And then on Thursday, of course, is that faithful night in the upper room when he washes the disciples' feet, has some incredibly intimate, powerful things to say about his departure and how the Holy Spirit's going to be with them and will bring to remembrance everything that he had said to them. Then he institutes the Lord's Supper, which he instructed the church to continue to do until uh, he comes. Um, and, uh, and then that night, he's also betrayed in the garden uh, by Judas. Uh, he's hastily brought before Caiaphas, Caiaphas, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, and then he, the Jewish high priest. And then he's later uh, tried uh, before Pilate and ultimately sentenced to death. By Friday, he's laid in the tomb. And on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he was in the tomb. On Sunday, he rose from the dead. Now, I've talked previously about how some people uh, really get confused based on the English translation of a Hebrew idiom, three days and three nights, and they have come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about how Christ didn't really die on Friday and didn't really rise on the Sunday. Ignore all of that. That is just misinformation and false information. I've written an article about this. I think I've given it out previously, but uh, the, the phrase three days and three nights just means any part of a day and any part of a night, and there's lots of biblical examples of the usage of that that is uh, unambiguous. Uh, so it certainly fits the, the model. And the church, church for 2,000 years has celebrated uh, Good Friday. Someone mentioned before church this morning, why do we call it Good Friday? I mean, that's the day Christ died. What's good about that? Well, it's called Good Friday because of the theological implications of it. That's the day that our sins were paid for, the atoning work of the Savior. And our sin debt was paid for. And so that's why it's good. It wasn't good for Jesus, obviously, uh, but it was all part of God's Redemptive plan. So the church historically has referred to that as Good Friday because of the implications for lost and sinful man. So he died on Friday, was buried, and rose again on Sunday. So with that kind of historical context, let's uh, kind of examine the evidence and uh, and and look at some of the suspects. Who was it that killed Jesus on that uh, Friday morning? Well, clearly the Romans have to be at the top of the suspect. Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, serving under the emperor Tiberius from the year roughly 26, 27 to 36 or 37. He had 6,000 troops with him and 30,000 more on call in nearby Syria. He was basically a dictator. And uh, so long as he kept Rome happy, he had absolute power, including power over life and death. Crucifixion was a Roman punishment carried out by Roman government for violating Roman laws. And so, as we think about uh, this uh, crucifixion, we read in John 19 how Pilate uh, issued the official order sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion. He tried to play on the pity of the crowd. you remember that? Uh, he, 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 according to Jewish custom, he was allowed to release one prisoner at Passover and be set free, and he wanted Jesus released. But the crowd... Uh, demanded that Barabbas be released. So Pilate said, I got another plan to kind of avoid being culpable for the death of Christ. And that is, uh, I'm going to have Jesus beaten so badly that the hostile Jewish crowd will have pity on him and and then allow him uh, to be released. It was a brutal plan. Uh, It's called the Roman scourging. It was gruesome, torturous. The The soldiers took Jesus back into the palace, removed his clothes, and tied him to a post, and then they beat him with a cat of nine tails, which consisted of nine straps of leather with a ball of leather at the end of each strap, and stuck in those balls of leather were bits of stone and iron and a chain to make the whip heavy and sharp, and it was not at all uncommon for those receiving a Roman scourging to die from it, and the Bible tells us Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. After the beating, the Roman soldiers humiliated the bleeding and wounded Jesus even more. Someone found some thorns and wove them into a crude crown and thrust it on Jesus' head. Another person located a soldier's cape and put it on Jesus' soldiers. And then the soldiers knelt down one by one and mocked Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Finally, they hit Jesus continually with their fists and spit on him and hit him with a stick. Well, the suffering of our Savior was only just beginning. In a matter of hours, Jesus would face the most torture-filled death in human history. It was a Roman custom to make the prisoner carry his own cross to the site of the crucifixion. Jesus was led through the crowded streets of Jerusalem carrying this heavy cross, but he was physically in no shape to go very far. It wasn't long until he collapsed under the weight of the cross, and a man from the crowd was commanded to carry it for him. There was nothing pretty about Jesus Christ's crucifixion, The cross was first laid on the ground. Jesus was then stripped of his clothing, laid on top of the cross. His hands were nailed to the cross first. The soldiers found the spot in each of his wrists where the two bones come together near the pulse. They were careful not to pound the nail into the pulse, and they drove the iron spikes through his wrists and into the wood. The nailing of the feet to the cross was an even more delicate matter. The soldiers had to make sure that his knees were bent so that he would not be able to stretch out and get proper air that he needed to breathe. And so he would die very quickly. Jesus' knees were bent as the soldiers pounded one long spike through both legs. Next, four soldiers hoisted the cross and dropped it partially into a large hole. The jolt of the cross falling into the hole must have caused excruciating pain. After just a few minutes on the cross, his entire body ached violently the nerves in his hands and feet had been shattered he began to experience swelling around the joints and wounds probably infection was already uh, invading his wounds as I said it was not uncommon for a crucified person to hang on the cross for days before hunger thirst pain and fever and exhaustion worked together to end his life but Jesus crucifixion was so severe that he died after just six hours Well, we read in Mark chapter 15 that the inscription of his accusation, remember Pilate had basically accused him of usurping his uh, authority. And he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And by not contradicting that claim that he was king of the Jews, he was violating Roman law. And uh, this was the primary evidence in convicting him, at least in Pilate's mind. And so Pilate placed that claim on the cross to drive the point home. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Going back to Mark chapter 15, Pilate could have resisted the demand for Jesus' execution, but he feared being accused of treason before Caesar if he allowed someone to be called King of the Jews. So, although, as we read, Pilate found Jesus not guilty in his own mind, he nevertheless had him executed in order to keep the peace. What then do you want me to do with him who you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So I think clearly the Romans have to be at the top of any suspect list. But if we look a little further, we find the Jews also bear some culpability. Now I've got to tell you, I get in a lot of trouble when I talk about this at various conferences because the modern Zionist movement has led to a blind denial of the role that the first century Jews played in killing their Messiah. And they blame shift. No, oh, it was the Romans. or No, it was just the Jewish leaders. It was just the Pharisees. You can't blame that on all the Jews. Well, first of all, we need to understand what we mean in context. If we say, for example, the Americans beat Iraq in the first Gulf War. That doesn't mean that every single American sitting in this room took up arms and was part of the army. Americans is a metonym for our country. And in the same way, certainly there were believing Jews at the time of Christ's death who did not want Him to be crucified. But at the same time, it clearly as we're going to see from the testimony of Scripture, was by no means just the Jewish leaders as many try to claim today. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus came to his own, that's Israel, and his own did not receive him. Jesus tells in the parable in Luke 19 that his citizens hated him. Now, that's not just the Jewish leaders. That's not just the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees and scribes. That's the common people within Israel. In fact, one modern English translation translates this, his own people did not receive him, making it even more clear. But they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. In John 5, we read, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Uh, for this reason, in the context, is because Jesus had healed the, the lame man on the Sabbath. But here he's talking about the Jews that were all up in arms about it. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders. Again, he goes on, The Jews sought all the more uh, to kill him. And in John 7, the Jews sought to kill him. I mean, can there be any doubt? Jesus responds, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you, in the context there, he's not talking about just the Pharisees, but the crowds. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Right. So you, there's no doubt who he was talking to there. Then you come to the early church church. Uh, history here in the book of Acts. And Peter is speaking to the crowds at Solomon's porch. Remember after that lame man who'd been lame from birth was healed. And Peter and John said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I will give to you. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in our study through the book of Acts. And uh, Peter is speaking to the crowds, not just the Jewish leaders. And he says, but you, plural, denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life and killed the prince of life. And of course, Peter goes on, as we're going to get to in just a moment, to talk about what happened after Jesus was killed, and that is he was raised from the dead. But of course, the chief priests and scribes also uh, were very much interested in killing uh, Jesus. Luke tells us this in Luke 22, chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. So it was not necessarily an either or, it's a both and, right? The people clearly had a bloodlust and wanted to see Jesus killed. Not all of them, any more than all Americans, can be blamed for something that our country does. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the Jewish people as a whole were, were culpable in Jesus' death. You remember after his resurrection when Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And these disciples come across the stranger. They don't realize it's the risen Savior. And uh, they said to him, uh, have you not heard what's going on? You know, because everything was in an uproar because the tomb was found empty. And Jesus kind of plays along and says, what, what things? What, what things haven't I heard? And they said, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word of God, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. So they were the mechanism. They were the ones in cahoots with the Romans. The leaders were. But they were doing it because that's what the mobs wanted. The mobs cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so after his betrayal, they led him away to Annas first. Now, Annas had been high priest from roughly 6 to 15 AD, and the Romans removed him from office, yet he still wielded considerable power behind the scenes. Five of his sons succeeded Annas as high priest, and he was the father-in-law, as we see here in John 18, of Caiaphas, the high priest who was in office at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And so Annas was still called high priest, even though he wasn't officially uh, in office. And his power was obvious. That's why Jesus, when he was arrested, was brought to him first. He was like the unspoken leader, you know, the one who, even though he wasn't in office, everybody still looked to him as the, the one that had the power. Kind of reminds me of that photo op we saw recently in the news of President Biden and former President Obama, and everybody flocked to Obama, and and Biden is just kind of walking around like he's a nobody, right? He had, Obama had more respect, right? And that was the way it was in the first century. Annas was highly regarded, and that's why they took him uh, to him first. And we read, the high priest uh, arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? Again, this is uh, Caiaphas here. After he went to Annas, What does these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, It is as you say. Uh, we read in Matthew 26, The high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. Uh, look, everybody, you heard him. He said he's king of the Jews. Yes, he's deserving of death, they all said. In Luke 23, Uh, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And we have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ. Who was it that Jesus lamented over just days, just a couple of days before he would be betrayed in the garden? It was the whole nation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. He wasn't speaking only of the Jewish leaders, but of the nation to whom he came, but who did not receive him, as the text tells us? And then uh, Pilate said that he could not prevail at all. But rather that, a, when, when he saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. That tumult wasn't just a few well-robed Pharisees. It was the crowds. He took water, washed his hands, and said, "I am innocent of this blood." And all the people answered and said, "What? His blood be on us and our children." Who said that? All the people. Going back to Acts, in chapter 2, on the day the church was founded, Peter preaches that powerful sermon that led to the salvation of 3,000 people as they believed the gospel. And he begins by saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. And he was speaking to the crowds gathered for the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And he says that God did through many miracles through him in your midst. It wasn't just the leaders. It was the whole citizens of Israel. And he says, You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified And put him to death. And he climaxes that powerful sermon at the end of chapter 22 with, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucify. In Acts chapter 7, which we looked at just recently, Stephen preaches a similar message about the death and resurrection of Christ and how he's the only hope of salvation. And he climaxes his sermon that ended up leading to him getting stoned. They were so angry at him when he said this that he says, this Jesus you have now become the betrayers and murderers of. So clearly the Jews bear some responsibility. Now that is not anti-Semitic to say that. We're just saying what the Bible says. We understand that God has a future for national Israel. That someday they will be supernaturally regathered into the land, and Jesus himself will come back and rule with a rod of iron in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, I mean, Israel is God's chosen nation. The Bible says they're the apple of his eye, but that doesn't change the fact that it was the Jews and not just the Romans who bear responsibility. Christ's crucifixion cannot be laid solely at the feet of one or the other. But this is where the story, as we examine that first century. Uh, pivotal event of all of human history, and we ask the question, who killed Jesus, takes a bit of a plot twist. We've looked at the Romans and the Jews, but there's another uh, suspect. Who killed Jesus? How about God? How about God? Jesus Himself said in John 3, God so loved the world, this is the words of Christ, that He gave His only begotten Son. Paul tells us in First Timothy, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. I love this verse in Romans chapter 8 where Paul, speaking about God and His great love for us, says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, that's God, who did not spare His own Son, watch this, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's in the context of that great sanctification section of Romans 6-8 through where we learn how to live the new life in Christ having believed the gospel. Yeah, God. God's the one that gave up Christ. But then we see another plot twist. Who killed Christ? How about nobody? Nobody killed him, right? Listen to the words of Jesus himself. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. This command I have received from my father. This is one of those great complexities and antinomies and things that we just can't really understand because it seems contrary to logic. As Paul said in Romans 11, who has known the mind of God? How can it be God who gave us His Son and yet Jesus who willingly offered His life? Well, it's both. And in God's sovereign plan of the ages that that we only see through the linear aspect of time, space, and matter, He used the Romans and He used the Jews to accomplish this. But finally, we see a major, major unexpected plot twist as we look at the final suspect. If this were a Hollywood script... ending to this mystery would cause it to win an Academy Award, I'm certain. Who killed Jesus? Everybody. Everybody. Reminds me of the 1934 Agatha Christie book, Murder on the Orient Express, where in the end you find out the crime was committed by all of the suspects, right? That's essentially what we see in Scripture. And the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before it happened, predicted this. He said, Surely He has borne our griefs, talking about the Messiah, Christ, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for His peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. He goes on, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. On in Isaiah's context, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but we know when you come to the New Testament that that verse is broadened and expanded so that the the death of Christ not only paid the sins of atonement for for Israel, but for all of mankind. And John makes this clear, going back to that first letter that we started with in 1 John, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's why uh, John's gospel records that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Theologically, Paul says there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself what? A ransom for all. A ransom for all. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So, who killed Jesus? Well, everybody. And that of course means you. Right? Fred killed Jesus. Mike, you killed Jesus, Gary, you killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. You want to find the culprit? All well, you got to do is pull out a mirror. That's who killed Jesus. We need to acknowledge our part. Stop shifting the blame. Own it. Because we have no one to blame but ourselves. We are all sinners and the blood of Jesus Christ is on our hands. Now, if you examine those blood-stained hands that we all have, we will quickly recognize that that blood represents the unfailing love of Christ. He loved you enough to die for you, to take your personal penalty upon Himself and offer to you the free gift of eternal life. You know, as we think about Christ's death this morning and who killed Jesus, we must not forget why we're gathered today, and that is to celebrate His resurrection. And Paul says in Romans 4 that, yeah, He was delivered up, killed for our offenses, our sins. But He was raised for our justification. Justification is just a fancy biblical word that means to be declared righteous. See, everyone is born unrighteous positionally, born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians two one says. But when Christ rose from the dead, He purchased our righteousness, the righteousness that we need, which is His. And He freely gives it to us if we simply receive it from Him. That verse we looked at at the start of this message this morning. He came into His own, but His own did not receive Him. Israel rejected Him. But the very next verse says, To as many as do receive Him, to those who believe in His name, faith is the only means of being declared righteous, He gives the right to become the children of God. So we celebrate His resurrection because if Christ is not risen, we're all still in our sins, Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. So yes, we killed Jesus. It was our sins that nailed Him to the cross. He died to to pay our personal penalty for sin, to get us out of the predicament that we got ourselves in. We had complete free choice. God warned us, said, don't eat from that tree. The minute you eat from it, you'll die. And we went right over and took a great big bite. And then God, in his incredible love, reached out, took the initiative, and made a way for us to escape the predicament we got ourselves in. But it's both his death and his resurrection. Jesus himself said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is when he was talking to Nicodemus, a Jewish leader and and member of the Sanhedrin, in fact. And he came to Jesus by night, remember, and wanted to know, hey, tell me more. And Jesus said, you've got to be born from above. You've got to experience a spiritual rebirth. You're dead. You may be living physically, you may have been born once from your mother's womb but you need a second birth and that only comes by faith as he goes on to say in John 3:16 and as we read here in 17 and 18 then at the end of that encounter Jesus says very plainly he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him so what's the takeaway who killed Jesus Well, sure, God used all different elements to bring him to that point, but ultimately it was you and me. And he did it out of incredible love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus died for you, and and he did so to purchase your redemption. But like any gift, it has to be received. Jesus' death didn't mean that everyone on earth automatically goes to heaven. That would be universalism, and that's not what the Bible teaches. God doesn't force his love upon anyone. It's got to be a free choice. Just as it was our choice to sin, it's our choice to receive the payment for our sin. And the way you do that, the Bible teaches more than 160 times, is by faith alone in Christ alone. So stop blame shifting. Own your sin. And then trust in Jesus as the only one with the power and authority because he defeated death, hell, and the grave to forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. Let's bow as we pray. Father, how we thank you for just the redemptive truth that we find in the story of the death and resurrection of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us uh, as we celebrate this new life this morning to examine our own hearts, each one individually, those that might be watching by live stream or perhaps watching this video later or listening to the podcast. I pray that your spirit would convict any who might come across this message this morning of their need for a Savior, of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and that those who do not know you in simple childlike faith would cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I own it. My sin has a steep penalty that involves literal eternity in a place of torment called hell and so lord today we pray that those who recognize that sinful condition would receive from you forgiveness by trusting in jesus christ and him alone as the only one who can save and for those of us who already know you lord we pray that we would be reminded yet again of the incredible sacrifice that was made on our behalf and that our gratitude for this unspeakable gift would lead us to live faithfully for You. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.